I'm Sandra Smith. I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm Deirdre Bolton, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, March 16th, 2020. I'm Jackie Heinrich. More schools closing and more employees preparing to work from home as the coronavirus pandemic moves through the United States. Dr. Mark Siegel, a Fox News medical correspondent and physician, says Americans need to remain calm and listen to the experts. Parts of the brain that process fear also process courage, laughter and love. And I think we have to tell our children the truth, but we need to do it in a way that keeps them hopeful. I'm Chris Foster. Seven months since Jeffrey Epstein's death ruled a suicide, Dr. Michael Bodden says we may not know the truth. The problem is that uh, the two guards who, who didn't do their rounds and who found him have refused to tell how uh, he was found. And I'm Robert Jeffress. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Days before another critical set of primaries, Democratic presidential candidates face off in a debate with no audience, all in an effort to curb the spread of coronavirus at public gatherings. Fox's Jessica Rosenthal. The debate began with the topic on everyone's minds, COVID-19. Both candidates were asked how they would be dealing with this crisis. Former Vice President Joe Biden said he'd be holding situation room meetings every day like they did during the Ebola outbreak. I would make sure that every state in the union had at least 10 places where they had drive-through testing arrangements. I would also, at this point, deal with the need to begin to plan for the need for additional hospital beds. We have that capacity in the Department of Defense, as well as in the uh, as well as with the uh, uh, FEMA. Bernie Sanders agreed, but focused on the economic fallout. When you get sick, you go to the doctor. When you get sick, if you have the virus, that will be paid for. Do not worry about the costs right now because we're in the middle of a national emergency. Sanders insisted the crisis exposes weaknesses in the current health care system. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. We're spending so much money and yet we are not even prepared for this pandemic. How come we don't have enough doctors? How come hospitals in rural areas are shutting down? How come people can't afford to get the prescription drugs they need because we have a bunch of crooks who are running the pharmaceutical industry? He said he'll fight for Medicare for all. Biden shot back. With all due respect to Medicare for all, you have a single payer system in Italy. It doesn't work there. It has nothing to do with Medicare for all. That would not solve the problem at all. The debate focused on other areas as well. Sanders went after Biden for a number of prior votes he cast. I voted against the Defense of Marriage Act. You voted for it. I voted against the bankruptcy bill. You voted for it. I voted against the war in Iraq, which was also a tough vote. You voted for it. Biden wasn't having it. This man voted against the Brady bill five times. Background checks. Background checks five times. They argued over climate change and a plan that goes far enough. Sanders' theme of the night, though, was that too few have too much power. The night ended with who could beat President Trump. I have my doubts that uh, Vice President Biden's campaign can generate that energy and excitement and that voter turnout. I will do that. And by the way, let's get this straight. The energy and excitement that's taken place so far has been for me. Biden does lead in the delegate count heading into Tuesday's elections. 
Coronavirus concerns are sweeping the nation as more tests begin to roll out and the numbers continue to rise. State and local governments taking swift measures to quell the spread of the virus, varying in scope from suggesting social distancing to sweeping mandatory shutdowns of public spaces, including restaurants and bars. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases on Fox News Sunday. We feel that with rather stringent mitigation and containment without necessarily complete lockdown, we'd be able to prevent ourselves from getting to where, unfortunately, Italy is now. Over the weekend, shoppers rushed to wholesale and grocery stores, loading up on non-perishables in the event of a quarantine. His company just got informed that he's going to be working from home, so we're just afraid that if he's working from home, we don't even have enough food. Not just for myself, I'm stocking up for my family too, so this is like a month's supply, just a month. Houses of worship suspended services, more schools announced long closures, and employers encouraged work from home. But as efforts to flatten the curve cause anxiety to spike, experts say these are the measures that need to be taken to prevent a worst-case scenario. And there's light at the end of the tunnel if we act now. Well, I think we're, that we're showing a great level of concern by what's happening in Italy, where there's over 20,000 cases and there was over 350 deaths in a single day. Dr. Mark Siegel is a Fox News medical correspondent and physician. But we also understand that our healthcare system is in better shape than theirs. But we're kind of using that as a worst case scenario to what to stay away from. And in, in order to do that, we're doubling down on our efforts for social distancing, hygiene, and avoiding large places. But in doing so, we're sending the message of worst case scenario. So we have to watch how we message. I'm very concerned about how we message. How question is, how can we get people to comply with a mandate that decreases risk, that improves public health outcomes without everybody feeling that they're going to die? That's really the, the big question here. Do you think that the efforts so far to encourage social distancing, you know, have been effective? Do you think people are being told to work from home if you can, but yet you have restaurants and bars that are still open and people are staying home during the day, but going out at night to try to keep those small businesses afloat? You know, how do you manage both those things? Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm not entirely convinced that social distancing is as successful a modality as we're being told by our public health officials, but it's all we have. I don't want everyone to think that it's 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 a cure-all to the situation because then you end up with a fractured group. Those who are in total denial, who are out partying, you know, sharing glasses, uh, watching, you know, not at all what they do. And then there's another group who's walking around with gloves, with masks, afraid to touch anybody, afraid that there's a single touch is going to transmit this virus. That dichotomy is deeply disturbing to me. One is a fear message. The other one is a denial message. I think at a time like this, we need courage and caring and love and looking out for people that are most at risk. You know, the message of caring and the message of how do we take care of our folks? Um, We've seen a lot of people rushing to the grocery stores, panic shopping, uh, under fears of a possible quarantine. Obviously, you know, you've got school cancellations and people are at home from work, you're going to have to make more meals at home than you ordinarily would. But um, is there really a need for people to go out and stockpile like we've been seeing? And what are the few items, if any, that people actually do need to have, if that's the case? You know, the problem is, I can't even answer that 
purely from a public health point of view because everyone else is rushing out and stockpiling. So, you know, if you want toilet paper, now's the time to get it because everyone else is, is running for it. So I think I think that the co- equation of what I would consider a basic supply has changed with everyone else stockpiling out of fear. But surely, if you're somebody with medical conditions, you should have two or three months of medical of, of medicines in your cabinet in any case, forgetting about coronavirus, what if there's a blackout? What if there's a flood? Sure. sure. You know, we. What if there's a hurricane? I mean, you, Jackie, you've reported on hurricanes. What is, you know, I would always have recommended that people keep an extra supply of water and medicines, uh, and maybe some canned goods. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, one thing I've been noticing the experts, including you, talking about is that you know most people who get this are not going to be critically ill, are not going to need to go to the hospital. It's going to feel a lot like the flu. Also encouraging that you saw news out of China that they were, you know, disassembling some of those emergency temporary hospitals that they set up. That's that's encouraging to see that there looks like they're on the downswing there. If you believe that, yes. And I also think that... um, It's a good caveat, if you believe it. (laughs) You have to, yeah. (laughs) I mean, why should we suddenly start believing anything But but from there? But one thing that one point you raised that I think is very valuable for us to consider is, and we are considering this in the medical profession, is where would we, where would people go if we need a large number of people quarantined, or if larger numbers catch the disease, catch the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, where would they go? And you know, flooding hospitals is a bad idea. Our hospitals are full. Some are closing already. Our hospitals are full, so we we should be considering things like converting hotels you know, converting hostels. Are there alternative places where people can go? That's something we have to be thinking about if the numbers start to increase dramatically as they did in Italy over the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about how this is something we're going to see get worse before it gets better, but it is going to get better. Uh, the question- I think so. I think so. I think it's going to get better. By the way, I'm not even sure how bad it's going to get. One of our problems here is that, and this is a huge point I want to make, we're busy speculating without the numbers. Both the doomsayers are speculating and the and the one and the ones who say, Don't worry, all is well are speculating. We need the numbers. One of the things we should look at is South Korea, where they where they tested over two hundred and fifty thousand people and discovered discovered about six thousand cases. And then they proceeded to isolate the six thousand cases and anyone they had come in contact with and used extreme public health measures, which I believe and this is amazing, it's coming out of my mouth, because I always believe these public health measures are overstated and then self-congratulatory. In other words, if it seems like they work, but you, you announce right. they work. But I, so I don't know, but in South Korea, it looks like that strategy has worked. Drive-through testing centers, isolate people that are sick in their contacts, and now the numbers seem to have stabilized in South Korea. Is, is that's it what too we, late, that's though, what we for, to- for us? I mean, we've, we've been talking about, you know, the measures that are being taken now will have some sort of an impact in quelling the the effects over time, the social distancing, the you know encouragement to work at home, the school closures, etc. Um, but, you know, while we're seeing these sort of um, draconian measures come into place, Maybe maybe an overstatement, maybe not draconian, but, you know, necessary close, and a little, a little bit, you know, chilling to, to some people. They they think of this as a really drastic like, oh, my gosh, everything's getting a little more real now. It's 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 affecting me in a way that seemed uh, unlikely. Um, but what happens 
after we get over the hump? You know, when do we get the all clear? What are experts going to be looking for as they start to let up on some of those directives and let people resume their, their lives? The numbers will guide that statement. Okay, the all clear. Well, the all clear has to be based on numbers. So, so since we don't even know how many cases we have and we can't even su- suspect how many cases we have, we think it's in the thousands, of course. We know there's over 2,000 documented cases. To me, there's at least 50 or 100,000 total cases in the United States, but that's speculative. You know, I would have guessed the same for South Korea. It ended up being a lot less. So if once I know the numbers, then I can say, okay, here's the all clear. The numbers are going down. Like you said about China, you know, the numbers are going down. Here's the all clear. Now we can relax this strategy a bit. But I have to say, and this is where I'm a little disbelieving, I'm not as convinced as some of our public health officials are that the strategies work as well as they're saying. And B, I'm not so convinced we should be relaxing those strategies once things start to improve. Mm -hmm. Because what are we what are we basing that on China? I mean, I I don't I don't know how many cases there are in China. They could simply have said we want to get out of the news. Let's stop testing people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. You know, we don't know. We, I think we have a better handle on what's happening in Italy and South Korea, in Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, in Taiwan than we do in, in China. And I particularly, as I said before, I particularly like what's going on in South Korea. We don't have that kind of consistency or government control here. We're not going to get that here. But look, you said it at the beginning, Jackie, there's a huge disparity between some groups out at bars partying late into the night you know, like like something out of a novel, and other groups are hunkering down nervously with masks and gloves. Right. You got I mean, it's it's quarantine, panic shopping, and doomsday partiers all at the same time. I mean, it, you couldn't have if you know if you were. This is a novel, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. What, what the scary part isn't the, the virus, though; it's the reaction to it. In my mind, I think that I think that the virus will and can be controlled. I think that the government has to put tremendous efforts now on vaccine. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not accepting the line anymore. It takes a year, year and a half. I want it to take less than that. Uh, I understand why that is, by the way. It's because you don't want to give the population a vaccine that uh, causes more side effects than it's worth. Because then, you know, th- you'll never hear the end of that. There'll be lawsuits till doomsday. But one thing we could do is push a vaccine that we use with healthcare workers and with, um, High-risk groups. Did you ever think of this, Jackie? Who's testing these people? Are you aware that um, in order to do a test for coronavirus, you have to stick a swab way up somebody's nose? And in order to do that, you should be wearing personal protective equipment. And I don't know that lab techs should be doing that. And that's one of the reasons for the huge delay. And doctors are being told not to see patients with these symptoms, nor are hospitals. So who's going to test it? Who's going to do the testing? Actually, it, it could be the individual themselves if they knew how to do it properly. And, and then where does it go? You know, does it go through the mail if they're doing it that way? I guess it's another question on how you get it delivered to the lab if you're trying to, you know, lessen the uh, the, the chain of custody. Um, but my other question in, as it pertains to tests is we're starting to see, you know, private companies, Quest, LabCorp, be able to conduct tests, which obviously is letting up on this delay that we had where the tests were coming out, filtering down from the federal government. Um, What's the timeline look like now that we have a greater ability to test? When will we start getting numbers that will give you some sort of meaningful indication of where we're at and where we're heading? Well, with all due respect to what you just said, and I, I happen to hold you in high esteem as a reporter, by the way, 
I don't know that I necessarily believe we're where there's where where we're being told we are. I mean, th this is the same government that said a million kits were sent out last week. I mean, I haven't seen them. I I keep trying to figure that out. I think what's actually happening is that as our medical centers wait to see whether the private labs that are that are engaged in this can really make it happen. They're now we're decentralizing the process. But I'm waiting to see whether that's going to lead to a massive increase in testing. I certainly hope so. The delay is absolutely exhausting and, and inexcusable here. Covers it for me. Dr. Mark Siegel, thank you. Is there anything you want to add to this? You know, you're the expert and, you know, I want to give you the last word. I want to say I'm writing a piece for FoxNews.com today about what to, tell, what to tell our children. And I wanted to say that the parts of the brain that process fear also process courage, laughter and love. And I think we have to tell our children the truth, but we need to do it in a way that keeps them hopeful and understands that we can beat this. We've beaten other things and we'll beat this. Really important place to leave it. Thank you so much. Dr. Mark Siegel, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me. This is Robert Jeffress with your Fox News commentary coming up. Jeffrey Epstein died in federal custody last August, waiting to be tried on sex trafficking charges. Two guards who were supposed to be checking up on him didn't and are now accused of trying to cover that up. The death was ruled a suicide, but not everyone buys that, with a lot of past Epstein associates maybe having reason to keep their secrets secret. There's a new documentary streaming on Fox Nation called The Final Hours of Jeffrey Epstein. In it, a former prisoner who spent hours with Epstein at the Metropolitan Correctional Facility in Manhattan, Bill Mersey, is about the conspiracy theories. There was a guy who worked with me in the kitchen, and uh, I'll call him White. He said, I had the cell next to Jeffrey Epstein. The night that he killed himself, I heard him tearing up sheets. He said, those officers did not come around and do count, and nobody came into the tier. He killed himself. Nobody killed Jeffrey Epstein but Jeffrey Epstein. Not so sure, though, is one of the world's best-known forensic pathologists, Dr. Michael Bodden. He's in the documentary, too, and says there's evidence this was a homicide, despite the official report. Well, supposedly he did it with uh, torn sheets, strips of uh, sheets that he had um, at some time during the eight hours that he wasn't being observed, that they didn't make the rounds, and while the video cameras weren't working. Naturally. So he was supposed to have done it by, by sort of leaning forward, or was there, was not enough, it, or was there enough height? It, well, it's not clear. The, the um, sheet is attached to uh, the bunk pole between the upper and lower deck, about four feet above the, uh, ab above the floor. But the, the, the problem is that uh, the two guards who, who didn't do their rounds and who found him have refused to tell how uh, he was found. We don't know. They knew they t when they went in, and they refused to tell anybody. And because of that, they are they've been indicted criminally, and they face trial in April, where they could face 15 years in jail, which is bizarre because guards fall asleep during the night, uh, and people commit suicide, and they'll fudge the records. Sure. And usually, there's a minor. Uh, 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 
a, a minor kind of like an administrative uh, punishment or punishment, something. Yeah. administrative punishment according to union rules. Here they were risking going to to uh, being found guilty and going to jail because they won't say that that's bizarre. Yeah, uh, what are they charged with? They're charged with a perjury about uh, federally, federally charged with perjury because they're not telling because they. Uh, filled out documents that uh, lied about their uh, viewing him. But the federal government, the Justice Department, said, look, tell us what, uh, how you found them. We won't charge you. And they refused to do that. So I guess that's another point in favor of a conspiracy here, if they're being paid off or frightened. Well, it, it's, that's a possibility that, that's been raised, yes. Was his body... So did they move his body? Yes. Also, uh, as you've seen in some of the television programs... Uh, the autopsy, the medical examiner autopsy starts at the scene. You have to know the only way you can tell time of death is at the scene. Rigor mortis, uh, uh, lividity, temperature changes. Uh, when a, a prisoner in New York State uh, dies for any reason, there are always going to be questions uh, as to cause of death and whether or not things could have been done to prevent the death, whether it's suicide or whether it's natural diseases. The bodies are not moved. EMS is not supposed to move a dead body. And for some reason, before anybody came in, photographed the scene with him or did anything, uh, the body was moved uh, widely after death, which shouldn't have been done. And there's not there's an issue as to who ordered the body to be re removed and why, because that destroyed the scene. Wow. Um, you were there for the autopsy. Yes. How did that come about? His brother? Well, his brother uh, was concerned. As soon as he found out that uh, Jeffrey had died, his brother, his only rel relative, was concerned that uh, he thought he had spoken to his brother. His brother seemed to be think that he was going to get out, out on uh, bail soon and uh, that his brother was not depressed. And he just wanted to know why his brother died, because if it is suicide, uh, he'll understand that there are no financial aspects to it at all. But if it's homicide, then he might also be at risk, he feels, mm -hmm. because uh, people may think he knows more than he does about uh, the, bad, the things that Jeffrey knew. Explain to me and us why, what are the physical aspects of uh, there that, you, that lead you to believe this was murder? Strangulation, I guess? Well, uh, strangulation, yeah. The, the issue that came up during the autopsy, because I was there with the doctor doing the autopsy, and it was reported as a suicidal hanging. And suicidal hanging, you do the autopsy, you put a suicidal hanging on the death certificate. Here, because of findings that are unusual for suicide, there were three fractures in the neck, which are not typical, but much more common with uh, strangulation, homicidal uh, strangulation. The hyoid bone, is that what it was? The hyoid bone and uh, the thyroid cartilages, two of them, which is the Adam's apple in the neck. And uh, that doesn't occur in hanging, but does occur in homicidal strangulation. It can't occur in hanging or doesn't often? It, it doesn't at all. You can get, the way it works, about 90% uh, of hangings, there's no fracture. Maybe 5 or 10% you can get the hyoid bone, just the hyoid bone. Uh, maybe less than 1% you'd get two fractures. Uh, but we don't see three fractures. The, the amount of pressure and the 
place of the pressure, which is in the middle of the neck rather than up above where you get in hanging, uh, don't make sense. And also particular hemorrhages in the eyes, the little, which are typical, typical for uh, homicidal strangulation and very unusual in hanging. So your theory, if you were going to piece this together, would be that somebody came up behind him with something? In, in order for it to be a, a homicide, in order for it to be a homicide, his door would have to be open and somebody else's door would have to be open where that can come in and, and uh, put a ligature around his neck and then may, hang him up to look like a suicide. And the interesting thing about it is these are old lock, key lock doors. They're not the electronic doors where everything gets on the, on the prisoner in the cells where everybody gets uh, locked in at the same time. A guard has to go around and lock each uh, uh, door in individually with the key. And uh, the theory would be that somehow somebody got out and went into his cell if, if it's a homicide. Yeah. Now, one of the things that the family lawyers are also concerned about is that usually when somebody dies, anybody dies, uh, there'll be investigators in a, in a prison. They'll go and ask the next cellmates, uh, did you hear anything? What Did he call out for help? Was he complaining of anything? In this instance, whatever was done uh, has not been made public because there were at least seven or eight other prisoners around him that should have been interviewed that would say, did they hear anything? Did he say anything? Did they, was there a struggle? Was there a fight? And that information is also not known yet. Um, how much of your of work like this is interpretation? Other, pe could other, other people could disagree with you or is it there's just no way? Oh no! The, uh, in 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 the in medicine, there can always be people disagree about it, whether it's natural or or unnatural deaths. I I think the the we can't make a decision to agree or disagree until we get all of the facts. The facts that are missing here is what was his posi the position of his body when he was found by the two guards. Now, presumably, that may come out during or after the. Uh, uh, trial that's coming up with the guards, or one one of the guards might turn on the other and and uh, say what's happened. Uh, why? What did the EMT people find when they uh, when they uh, came to the cell? The ambulance people that hasn't come out at all. And there's, the lawyers for the family have been trying to interview those. Uh, the EMT people may refuse to say anything. Also, so uh, at that point one can make a uh, decision that people can still agree or disagree about it. So we still, we may, we may know more with the trial. The, the we, trial of these guards is the next good shot to learn more about this. That's right, because uh, we met with the Justice Department to try and get them, that's handling it, it's a federal uh, death, uh, and uh, to get some of that information, which that they know why weren't the videos working? Were they corrupted uh, uh, naturally or did somebody cut them? Uh, we know what the surrounding, they know what the surrounding uh, 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 inmates mm -hmm. saw, didn't see. They know whether the DNA from the ligature uh, showed that it was around his neck because the, the ligature as shown in the photos doesn't match the ligature mark around the neck. There should be DNA to say who, who handled that ligature mm -hmm. and uh, whether it was around his neck or not. Any other evidence in the last just couple of weeks or a month that are, are pointing you even more in this direction? Uh, no, I think the, the, there's a general feeling that it was a convenient death mm -hmm. uh, that points it toward a homicide. That, that 
we, yeah. that's not scientific. Right. Uh, I mean, because there's, there's another, I guess, conspiracy theory that uh, that it was a, more of a blind-eyed death. Uh, uh, that, that people just look the other way and let him kill himself. But you're saying the oh, physical... Uh, no, the, the, the issue, if he if he killed himself, whether they just look the other way, uh, that resolves it. Uh, but uh, whether he was encouraged or not to do it. But the other issue involved is even if he killed himself, you don't get three fractures. Right. That's the problem. You don't get particular hemorrhages and, and fractures. Uh, that's virtually only seen in homicidal because of the way the pressure is applied. Uh, Dr. Michael Bodden, forensic pathologist. Uh, he's involved in this new Fox Nation special called Final Hours of Jeffrey Epstein. Dr. Bodden, thanks a lot. Thank you. Download and make it Hammer Time with Bill Hammer. Trey Gowdy, welcome. So if the department is going to start issuing, making public investigations about people that you don't even have enough information to charge, that is a slippery slope. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday. This will be the first full week of what's likely to be a radically changed America all because of the coronavirus. Schools and colleges are closed in many places. Sports events, both major and minor, are canceled or delayed. The enormously popular NCAA men's basketball tournament was supposed to tip off this week. It won't. Major theme parks, concerts, Broadway shows, all going dark. Supermarkets and grocery stores struggling to keep food on shelves to prevent panic buying. Major swings in the stock market. Millions of workers are trying their hand at working from home. Some are facing the possibility of temporary unemployment. National Guard troops deployed on the streets of many cities to help out. One big thing, though, still expected to happen this week. Presidential primaries in Florida, Ohio, Illinois and Arizona. That's a look at the very unusual week ahead. Life in the time of coronavirus. I'm Anna Eliopoulos. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Robert Jeffress. What's on your mind? Socialism and capitalism are two different ways of achieving the common good. Capitalism relies primarily on markets, whereas socialism favors government provision of social services. The Bible places importance on caring for the poor, but it also puts a strong value on hard work. So which system is better? First, we need to be honest and say the Bible does not endorse any specific economic system wholesale. One reason for this is that every system, no matter how well constructed, will always be implemented by sinful human beings. Depravity is the built-in problem that every economic system has to navigate. But we still need to be guided by biblical principles and concerns. Here are some questions we should be asking about any government policy. Does this public policy make it easier for individuals, families, and local communities to flourish? Second, does this public policy respect the dignity of work? And finally, does this public policy make it harder for the sick to become well or for the poor to find financial independence? In our own country, capitalism has been the economic system that has created the most prosperity for the most people. 
But the reason capitalism has worked is because Christian faith gave Americans certain attitudes, what Alexis de Tocqueville called habits of the heart, such as generosity. When a capitalistic system has been paired with generous hearts, it has provided general prosperity and created space for charities to help those in need. When Americans have seen a pressing problem, historically, they have not waited for a government bureaucrat to show up and solve it. Instead, families and churches and synagogues and other nonprofits stepped in. But is this still true for America? As people have become less generous and more isolated, it's not surprising that people are clamoring for socialism and government benefits. Ultimately, the challenge that lies before us as a nation is a moral choice. We must decide whether generosity will become a habit of the heart once again, leading us to roll up our sleeves, work hard, and then find ways to help others. Another way to put it is this. Will we love our neighbors, or will we ask the government to do that for us? This is Robert Jeffers, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Fox News contributor, and author of the new book, Courageous. You have been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to Fox News Radio's hourly newscast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, visit foxnews.com. Download and subscribe to original podcast from Fox News Radio. It's time to get caught up on what's happened and what's next. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcast.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.